Marjorie Talcott was married and had a young son during the Great Depression in the United States. The Great Depression took place beginning in 1929 all the way to the early 1940s. And it was a time of such abject poverty, it would be shocking to us in this culture, in this generation, what that poverty looked like between 1929 and 1940. My mother and dad were children during that very period of time. And though they lived in totally different locations, grew up in totally different locations, both of them were, their families were unbelievably poor. And so were most families during that period of time. And so were the Talcotts. And Marjorie Talcott and her husband and her little boy lived during that period of time. And when one Christmas came, there was just no money. There was no way. And they barely had enough money to keep body and soul together to buy just enough food just to survive. And so they decided no Christmas gifts for this Christmas. And they broke the news to little Peter, to Pete, and they gathered together and they decided, you know what, there's not going to be any Christmas presents at Christmas this year, but let's use our imagination and let's imagine, what if we had all the money in the world, what Christmas gifts would we give to each other? And whatever our imagination comes up with, let's draw that object and color it and label it, cut it out, and then we will hang every one of these imagined gifts on the Christmas tree. Because they had no ornaments, these will be our ornaments. So they went out in the country, they chopped down a tree, and they brought it into their living room, and they began to draw all the different things that they would give to each other if they had all the money in the world. And then they would hang those on the Christmas tree. There was a speedboat on the Christmas tree and a diamond bracelet on the Christmas tree. And there was even a swimming pool for little Pete on the Christmas tree. And before they finished, at the end of Christmas Eve, it was totally covered with all these imaginary gifts. They had a lot of fun. They had a lot of fun laughing and talking about these kinds of gifts. But Little Pete had one more gift, and he said to his mom and dad, but I'm not going to give this gift to you until Christmas morning. So Christmas morning came, and they all get Old Testament about the first coming of, of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah, and they are all wrapped up in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Did you know that there are 300 prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ, the first coming of the Messiah, and they are so detailed and so specific that when you bring them all together, it is not humanly possible for anyone to be able to fulfill all 300 of them without the divine intervention of God, and that is exactly what happened 700 years after Isaiah penned Isaiah chapter 9, the Messiah comes, and he fulfills, Jesus fulfilled 
all 300 of these prophecies and every minute detail of these prophecies, which is one of the evidences, just one, one of the evidences that the Bible truly is inspired by God, that there truly is a God who made this Bible come together because how is it possible that anyone could know hundreds of years and thousands of years that all of this would come together under one individual and he would fulfill all of them. And many of these prophecies were beyond Jesus' personal, humanly speaking, his personal ability to produce, and yet it came together. It was an evidence of the hand of Almighty God. There are also hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament and New Testament about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And one of those are found in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. Now what's interesting to me is every single one of these 300 prophecies of the first coming of Christ happened literally and physically. And it gives evidence of why, of how it is that we are to interpret the prophecies of the second coming of Christ. If those prophecies, which there, many of them are, are first and second in the same passages, doesn't it make sense? that we are to interpret the prophecies of the second coming of Christ exactly how we see the prophecies of the first coming of Christ being fulfilled. There is an analogy that I have used before, I've mentioned to you before, but I love it. It's something that just opened my whole understanding of Scripture, and I want to use it again as we think about Isaiah chapter 9. I want you to imagine that you are in a vehicle, a car, a truck, or whatever, and you are going down a freeway, and over in the distance, the far distance, you see a huge mountain in front of you, a mountain range, but one particular mountain. And you're driving, you're driving, and there is this beautiful mountain in front of you, and it's one big mountain until you get closer. And when you get closer to the mountain, to your surprise you discover that's not just one mountain, that's two mountains. That is a smaller mountain in the front and a larger mountain in the back with a valley in between. But you couldn't tell that from a distance. And that is the Old Testament writers. They were from such a distance. They were telling these prophecies, and they all couldn't be at the same time, but it didn't make sense. But they faithfully recorded what the Holy Spirit gave to them. The smaller mountain is the first coming of Jesus Christ. The larger mountain in the background is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you and I live in the valley in between. And we have such unique perspective. We can look back and see that first coming of Christ and all that, that it was involving. And it helps us to better understand now how to view the second coming of Jesus. What we do know is that in this passage, the name of Jesus that is used is the promised Messiah. For the first coming of the Messiah brought us into relationship with God. When Isaiah wrote this passage of Scripture 700 years before Jesus came the first time, 
He was living in a period of time of the Jews of great despair and darkness. The reason is because of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire at this very moment in time in Isaiah's life had already swept into the northern kingdom called Israel and wiped it off the face of the planet. And now they were coming to Judea to the Jews to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. And you can imagine, they'd already seen it happen to their cousins, and now they were in such darkness and fear. It's described in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. They were in a time at the moment that Isaiah lived in deep darkness and fear. They did not know that God had already prepared their rescue in an unbelievable, in a miraculous way, God rescued Jerusalem and all Judea from the Assyrian Empire. It was one, uh, it is one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And it was so profound, it's actually listed three times in the Old Testament. But what was so interesting to me is that archaeologists in Assyria, what was Assyria of that time, the, the, the country Syria, Archaeologists have now uncovered the documentation of that very event from the Assyrian viewpoint, and they give confirmation of the rescue of the Jewish people. But Isaiah also had in mind, when he wrote these words, not just of this miracle that God would use to rescue the Jewish people, but the coming of the Messiah who would rescue all mankind. And it is the second thing. It is the coming of the Messiah that I want us to zero in on. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. That area that is called Zebulun and Naphtali is actually the area around the Sea of Galilee. And this fulfillment of the prophecy happens during the time of Jesus. How do I know? Well, listen to Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. And Jesus went first to, to Nazareth and then left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God had said through the prophet Isaiah. He's now quoting Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. 
in the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali beside the sea beyond the Jordan River in Galilee where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its, vow, its shadow, a light has shined. When Jesus came, he brought with him several things. First, Jesus brought light for those in darkness. John chapter 1 verse 4 says it this way, in him Jesus was life and that life was the light for all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness is used symbolically throughout Old Testament and New Testament to be a symbol of confusion and of distress. In the first century when Jesus arrived, there was such deep confusion about God. The sin of the people, both Jewish and non-Jewish, the sin of the people had separated them from God, and they did not know how do we get back to God. How do we understand this God of the universe? And then Jesus arrived, and he turned on the light. When Jesus came and he taught, there are so many things that you and I believe about God, and we just take it for granted that everyone should have understood these things, but it was Jesus that explained them. They did not understand these things before Jesus, that God wants to be our Heavenly Father. That God wants to have a personal relationship with us. That instead of God being some great distant God out there somewhere, God wanted to be up front and personal. He wanted to live inside of us. We only know that today because of Jesus, because of what Jesus taught us. That God loves us that God yearns to know us and for us to know Him. Only Jesus taught us that truth. Jesus turned on the light of a relationship with God. Jesus also brought joy to those in despair. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. These are not 21st century words. These words would have had such deep meaning to them in 1st century and in 7th century or 8th century B.C., but not so much in 21st century. In 21st century, it simply means that when Jesus comes, He will bring a joy and a relief. It is true that Jesus can restore families, that he can restore marriages. In this room right now, there are so many marriages that Jesus restored that would not be together today outside of the impact of the teachings of Jesus Christ in our lives. He taught us how to love each other. He taught us how to forgive each other. He taught us how to give up ourselves to meet the need of the other. It is true that Jesus, upon coming, 
can restore and is restoring families and can heal sicknesses and can show us the way to live our lives. But the first coming of Jesus Christ was not, was not about ending all pain and suffering. The first coming of Jesus Christ was not about ending all pain and suffering and injustice. Rather, Jesus came to show us how to live in such a close relationship with God that no matter what the world doles out to us, no matter what pain and struggle we experience, He gives us an inner joy that the world cannot take from us. Yes, we go through pain. Yes, we go through heartache. Yes, we go through misery that has not been eradicated from the world. But even when we go through these days, He gives us in that relationship with God a joy that the world cannot strip from us. He came to bring us joy. He came to bring us relief. Third, Jesus brought freedom to those who are oppressed. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 4, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. There is no greater oppressor than our sin and its result and fear of death. There are probably many in this room who are chained because of sin that has become a habit that has chaining your heart. Jesus came to bring freedom from those who are oppressed. And Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. But we've got to take the truth and actually respond to the truth in obedience to God. And when we respond in obedience to God... He is like the key that unlocks the chains and sets us free. But not just the oppression of sin, but the fear of death. Jesus himself said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you will never die. Yes, your body will die. But the very moment that your body dies, who you are, your personality, your spirit, your soul comes up out of that body and immediately into the presence of God. Fully aware of who you are, fully knowledgeable of who you are, you do not die. Jesus' first coming was to bring light into the darkness, joy into our challenges, and freedom from, from all who are oppressed. And all of this comes through a relationship with God, and it was the reason for the first coming of Jesus, to bring us into relationship with God. But... The second coming of the Messiah was to bring an end to all pain and suffering. Do I hear an amen in this room? 
that is coming. He is saying, no, that did not, was not eradicated in the first coming of Jesus, but I'm telling you in the second coming of Jesus, all injustice, all pain, all suffering will be eradicated forever. And that is the promise. He says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. We don't have time today to go into the details about the second coming of Christ. I wish we did, but we would need several more hours. Hey, let's just stay. And No, I get 20 minutes today. But Jesus, while he was here, talked many times about the fact that he is coming again. He is coming again. And then when he arose from the grave, and then 40 days later ascended back into heaven, Acts chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, two angels suddenly stood among the disciples and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. The Old Testament and the New Testament are filled with detailed prophecies of the return of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he will eradicate all injustice and all pain and suffering. And here's the question I'm going to ask you. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with God through His Son, through faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know Him? If you don't know Him, you can. The great truth of Christmas and of Easter is that He came from heaven to earth to live a perfect life to teach us what we never understood, to turn on the light of understanding of who God is, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to arise from the grave. And he offers to you the gift of eternal life. And he says that by faith you would accept Jesus into your heart. He'll save you and forgive you and begin an amazing relationship with God.